Please turn to page eight as I read the scripture this morning. Our New Testament reading is from the book, book of Acts, uh, chapter one, starting in verse six. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, Suddenly, two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And our gospel reading is from John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. As he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, no, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, we ask that you would meet us this morning. We thank you, Father, that you in the fullness of time sent forth your Son to unite all things in him. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you lived among us as one who loved God and loved neighbor perfectly. You died for us, you rose for us, and you have ascended to the right hand of your Father to take your throne in heaven. And we thank you, O Holy Spirit, the sent one, for being here among us, and we pray that you, O whirlwind and breath of God, would sweep us up in your movement this morning, and that you would speak to us, move us, enliven us by your power. We ask all this through the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> So this past Thursday was Ascension Day 
in the calendar of the church. It's the day that comes 40 days after Easter where the church around the world remembers this moment where Jesus, having walked the earth after his resurrection for 40 days, teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God, was taken up into heaven as his disciples stood there watching. It's the event we just read about in this first text. And I had a wonderful family discussion this week around the dinner table about the, the ascension because, you know, we talk about the death of Jesus. We talk about the resurrection. We even talk about Pentecost and the Spirit. But at least in the circles I run in and the dinner tables I gather around, ascension gets less airplay in, in my experience. And so I just raised the question, hey, why does the ascension of Jesus matter? And we had this lovely discussion um, and so many, so many beautiful insights came to light. But I think two just that I've been chewing on um, over the last couple of days that I want to share with you as it pertains to Jesus, our high priest, Jesus's ascension is where he goes. And as the writer of Hebrews talks about, Jesus passes through the heavens and makes a way for us to be in the place where God is right? That God who lives in this holy of holies, as it were, where no human being could possibly live before the face of God. Now, human flesh lives before the face of God and doesn't drop dead. But yet our high priest, our human Jesus, who is God and man, is there before the face of the Father, interceding for us, our human being priest, before the face of God, and he's made a way that we would be there too. So that's one insight of Jesus, our high priest. But also as you think about Jesus, our king, Jesus's ascension is his coronation theme that's somewhat timely these days, having just seen one of those. Those don't come around that often, at least not in the things that I pay attention to. Um, but Jesus's ascension is, is the moment of his coronation, where having walked the earth, being anointed as Israel's Messiah at his baptism, he's living as God's anointed king on earth during his whole life, and he dies as our Messiah, and he rises as our Messiah. Yet the moment he ascends to the throne of heaven and is seated there at the right hand of the Father, Jesus takes up his throne as king of heaven and earth. And in that moment, he receives the gift from the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. It's this gift that he will pour out upon his church because all that the Son receives from the Father, he shares with us. And so as it pertains to Jesus, our priest, the ascension is really important. And as it pertains to Jesus, our King, the ascension is really important. And so it's that moment today that we mark in our celebration of the life of Jesus and all that he has accomplished on our behalf. And now on this Ascension Day, we continue our Easter series because this Ascension moment happens during this unfolding Easter season that, that really goes from the moment Jesus rises from the dead to the moment that he sends his spirit at Pentecost, which is what we'll celebrate on Pentecost Sunday. But here we are continuing our Easter series where we're looking at signs of new creation signs of resurrection life in these seven signs given in the Gospel of John. And we have Jesus today healing the blind. And the story of healing that we come across is a beautiful window into what it looks like for Jesus to exercise his kingship on earth. Because the kingdom of God is one where the eyes of the blind are opened, where the light conquers the darkness, and where all behold the glory of God. It's also a beautiful glimpse into what it's like for Jesus as our priest 
to touch and heal us, to intercede for us, to step into those places of our brokenness and to put his finger on our wound and heal us. For his light to invade our darkness and flood it with the glorious illumination of God. And this story in this gospel is both a miracle and a metaphor. It's a miracle because we're reading about a real guy, right? A real moment where Jesus met an actual individual and did an actual thing. And it was miraculous. And the eyes of the blind were opened. But it's a metaphor because it stands for more than what it is. And John gets really explicit about that. We didn't read all of chapter 9, but if we were to read all of chapter 9, we would see that the story about this man keeps going on. And this guy gets, once he's healed, he runs into a bit of trouble with the religious leaders because he's experienced this healing touch of Jesus in a way that the religious establishment is not prepared to embrace. And this guy, by virtue of just pointing to Jesus and saying, this is the one who healed me, is now finding himself in a bit of hot water with the people in charge. And he's going to find himself even more or less run out of town. And Jesus is going to need to go find him. And when he does, Jesus is going to actually explain to this guy the point of what it is that he's doing. And we'll get to that later in the story where Jesus will tell us that he's helping him see that Jesus is the Messiah. And John will say at the end of his gospel that he's writing the whole book so that we who don't get to see with our eyes will through eyes of faith see and believe. So all that is important, but I want, before we get too far into this passage, to go on a little excursus. It's less about what this passage is about and a little bit more about where we are right now in our community. Because the first thing that we see in this story is Jesus and his disciples walking along the road, walking along, they see this man who's blind from birth, and his disciples ask Jesus a question, right? And it's a question that they didn't think was dumb because it fit their theological world that they lived in. But it's a question that I want to highlight, and I want us to call it dumb, and I want us to think about other dumb things that we say in moments of grief and suffering, because it's helpful to sometimes t do that so that we can grow as a body who becomes more skilled in coming alongside those who are in situations of suffering and grief. So the question that these disciples ask is, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, whose fault is it that this guy was born blind? Obviously someone's to blame because this can't be God's fault. That's the underlying rationale for their question. So who was it? Was it this guy or his parents? And you would think, well, how could it be him? That doesn't make any sense. If, it's, if he's born blind, are you saying that he sinned like in the womb? They actually had a theology based on the story of Jacob and Esau and the in utero wrestling and the cheater grabbing the heel of the other twin. Like there was actually a theology of ways that you might sin in the womb at that time, okay? And there are also theologies of the sins of the fathers being visited upon those and later generations to come. And so in their mind, their question is a sincere and not stupid one. And they're asking it and Jesus addresses it. And he's just like, that is not how it works. Nobody sinned. That's not why this guy's blind. He's blind for a very different reason. 
Now, his explanation doesn't seem necessarily satisfying to us either at face value because it looks like when Jesus' answer makes it sort of sound like, no, 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 the reason this guy's blind is because God's been saving him for this moment where I'm going to do a big thing. And you're like, wow, so God like gave this guy decades of blindness so that there could be this big aha moment, reveal. That doesn't seem very gracious or kind. But I think that's our overreading into the text, some, some things that are not there. I think what we should see in this text is Jesus, in a sense, correcting the theology of his disciples who are assuming that when something goes wrong in someone's life, that we can point the finger somewhere to someone to blame. And Jesus is saying, no, you can't. This is not the only place he teaches the no, you can't theology. There's the whole tower that falls story as well. Basically, Jesus is leading his disciples into a world where, hey, the world is broken. Things are bad. Things happen. And while it is always easier to find someone to blame because our anxious energy and our sadness, they need somewhere to go. And if you can find a scapegoat, it's really easy to aim it at somewhere for it to go. So if you have someone to blame, it's easy because you know what to do with your anger. You know what to do with your sadness. You know what to do with your rage and your blame. When you don't have someone to blame, it can be really difficult because where does it go? Does it just go into the air? Does it go at God? Does it, where does it go? Does it just leak into all of your relationships? Jesus leads them into a more complicated situation where there's no one to blame. This man's blindness is a symptom of a world gone wrong. It's not his fault. It's not his parents' fault. It's also not God messing with him. Yet Jesus, in this moment, meets this man and heals him. The healing act looks gross to us. Jesus spits in the dirt and makes mud and rubs it in his eyes. That feels weird. It's an act that would have been a normal medicinal act at the time. And so let's not overread anything into the, into the spit and the dirt. It's just Jesus doing an act that is this act of healing. And then he says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. Jesus is revealing his identity as the one who is sent from God. The religious leaders are going to the whole time say, he's not sent from God. He can't be because he doesn't do it the way we do it. The story is going to be about learning to see Jesus as the one sent from God and then following him. But let's get back to this dumb saying. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, to the disciples' credit, they're not asking the guy, is this your fault, right? They're asking Jesus. It's not that kind of malpractice. But I did a little inventory with several people this week, and I said, hey, I want to know, people that I knew had experienced grief or suffering, and there were many that I left un unquestioned. Um, but these are people who've experienced it more in the, in the more distant past, um, who've had an opportunity to process and heal a little bit more. And I just asked, hey, what are some unhelpful things people have said to you when you were in the raw moment of grief or suffering? And I made a little collection of sayings that people have found unhelpful. On the list is almost anything that tries to explain anything. When, you, when you're in the context of someone who's in the, in the situation of grief, please don't come alongside and say something like, God is sovereign, or God loves the person you've lost more than you possibly could, or 
any of these things, no matter how true any of them may be, they're not helpful in a context of grief. One person actually said, someone asked me, what did he do that angered God so much that he would die in this way? The actual question here that I thought was too dumb to make the list, there's actually, there are people in our community who have experienced that line of questioning in situations of grief. Let me pause. This is not a critique of what's happened in this community, okay? I'm not saying like I've heard all these things about what we've done. I, the point here is not to scold us. The point here is to equip us because we have grief going on. We know it. So many of us in this community have lost a loved one recently. So many of us in this community are closely connected to people who are going through deep suffering right now, whose bodies are failing, who are experiencing end of life. We're in this right now. We are those coming alongside people in grief. And this is an opportunity to build a little skill. Another thing that's not helpful to say, I know what you're going through. You don't. You, know, you don't know what someone else is going through, right? You don't know what I'm going through. I don't know what you're going through. The only thing we can do is make space to be with and understand one another, to invite understanding at a pace that is doable and helpful. All the things that are not helpful are anything that tries to take away the pain, right? Anything that's trying to like find a silver lining or that's trying to um, redirect attention away from sadness towards something better, right? At least she's no longer in pain. That's not necessarily helpful. Another thing that's not helpful is just the simple question, how are you doing? How would you possibly answer that question when the answer is so unbelievably complicated and hard? More focused questions are better. Simpler questions, right? What sorts of things have you been thinking about since your loved one has died? What kinds of memories do you have about the person who's died? Can you tell me more about what it's been like for you? How's your family doing or what kinds of concerns do you have about them specifically? You know, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians says, you know, blessed be the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions that we may comfort those who are in any affliction with what? With the comfort we ourselves have received from God. First person testimony about your own experience, about experiencing comfort with God is so much more valuable, so much more helpful. Ways that God has met you in moments of suffering ways that God has shepherded you through the dark night of the soul. Those kinds of stories, those kinds of testimonies in the context of spiritual friendship are so much more powerful than theological statements or explanations or short statements that are designed to try to look on the bright side or anything like that. Let's be a community that learns from the school of suffering and from the spiritual friendship with those who suffer how to come alongside more effectively those who are in the dark. Nicholas Wolterstorff, in his beautiful book, Lament for a Son, which is a book he wrote in the year following the death of his son, who when he was in his 20s was climbing in the mountains and fell. 
and Nicholas Wolterstorff wrote this beautiful book. It's very raw. It's a year's worth of journal entries. And he just said, if you don't know what to say, it's okay, just say, I don't know what to say. But please don't say it's not so bad. And then he goes on and starts to catalog a few other things not to say. And he says, what I need from you is to come and sit with me on my grief bench. Doesn't necessarily need you to say anything at all. It just needs your presence. Needs to know that you're with me in this. Because so often the words that we speak from a place of not understanding, all they communicate is, I don't see you where you are. I'm not with you where you are. You're alone. Now that's not what this text is about. I've, I've stretched my excursus to the limits, but I wanted us to have this opportunity because we need to acknowledge where we are as a community. And there are a lot of people hurting in our midst. Um, we are hurting, many of us. And we need to be practicing a kind of robust spiritual friendship together, a deep friendship that is helpful, that doesn't add insult to injury, but that instead bears the burdens of one another in profound and beautiful ways. But let's get back to the point of the story. The blind man whom Jesus healed is brought to the Pharisees for questioning. So Jesus heals him and the religious leaders don't like it because once again, as we've seen before, Jesus does this on the Sabbath. He's making a point again. And so the religious leaders call the man in for questioning and the guy just tells the story as it happened. One commentator <clears throat> that I read this week calls this the story of the guy who just couldn't not tell the truth. <laughs> he finds himself in all these situations where he could just, if he just would be like, mm, he'd be okay. Like his life would go on as normal, but he just can't not tell the truth of what Jesus has done for him. So they bring him in and they ask him, what did he do? And they say, this man is not from God because he doesn't observe the Sabbath. How could a sinner perform such signs? And the guy just says, look, I'm just telling you what he did. This guy, he healed me in this way. And so they asked him, they said, well, what do you say about him? And he says, I think he's a prophet. And so the religious leaders, they're starting to backpedal here and they're starting to question some of the other features of the case. They're saying, well, actually, you know what? Maybe this guy wasn't actually blind from birth. And being blind from birth makes this whole healing thing like not possible according to our categories. So maybe actually he became blind later. Let's go figure this out. So they go find the guy's parents and they start to question them. And then his parents totally throw their son under the bus because John tells us they're afraid because the religious establishment has already agreed to kick out of the synagogue anyone who confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. That's already the established rule. If you confess Jesus is the Messiah, you're out of the synagogue. And being kicked out of the synagogue is not like just being kicked out of like this church or something where you just like go do something else. To be kicked out of the synagogue, each town would have had one for the most part. There's two in one place, but it's like the center of community life. If you're kicked out of the synagogue, it's like being shunned. It's like being kicked out of the whole community. It's being like cut off from everyone you know with nowhere to go. And so this guy's parents are afraid because anyone who confesses that Jesus is the Messiah is at the risk of being kicked out. And so they're like, you know, he's, he's of age. Go ask him. <laughs> you know, like, thanks, parents. 
So the Pharisees go back to questioning the guy who was healed. And here's how the story goes from there. This is now just reading from John. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, I don't know whether he's a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, you are his disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, here's the astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins and you are trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. The one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see. And those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. The story is about Jesus opening the eyes of those who do not see God because they do not see Jesus. The story is about Jesus healing us in our blindness, where our gaze is fixed upon ourselves, upon our status, upon our answers, upon our preconceived notions, upon our preferences. And because we are so fixated on staring at those, we miss the face of God right in front of us, reflected to us in the image of our neighbor. You see, Jesus is God's revelation of himself to the world. But the best theologians in the world, the most schooled and studied, the most, you know, rigorously credentialed theologians and leaders of the day, they got it all wrong because they just couldn't see Jesus. They had all the right answers and they, they ended up all wrong. And because they were so committed to them, they missed God in person in their world when he showed up. Cindy teased out for us this connection between Jesus and Elisha. 
you know, this Elijah and Elisha stories that run uh, through the book of Kings. And, and we get John the Baptist as this Elijah figure and then Jesus as the Elisha figure after him who does all of these miracles and places that connect and you can plot on the map where things happen and you can see the Elisha type miracles unfolding in the life of Jesus. And there's this scene in the life of Elisha when the king of Aram is threatening to attack the city of Dothan. And the story goes like this. When an attendant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. His servant said, alas, master, what shall we do? And he replied, do not be afraid, for there are more with us than there are them. And then Elisha prayed, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the servant and he saw. The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When the Arameans came down against them, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, strike this people please with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. It's this incredible moment where the people of God are totally outnumbered and it just, it's, a, it's a losing battle by any estimation. And simply Elisha prays, God, will you just open their eyes that they would see what's real? And their eyes are opened and then all of a sudden reality becomes visible. And the host of the Lord is all around them. The battle belongs to the Lord and the Lord is fully equipped to manage it. And as it was true back in the days of chariots and swords and nation against nation types of battles and that being the way the story of God was unfolding, now in the days of the other kinds of battle where Jesus leads us forth armed not with swords and not with chariots, but armed with the spirit of the living God and with the love of our crucified savior. And he leads us into the battles of repenting of the sins that actually ensnare us and choke out our lives. And he leads us into the battles of relational strife where the kind of love that's called forth from us is so hard to give, seemingly sometimes even beyond what we're capable of. Or he leads us into the battles of navigating circumstances in life that are just absolutely crushing whether it's something you are going through yourself or something your friend is going through, something you're walking alongside someone else through, the valley of the shadow of death, the realities of bodies failing, marriages failing, relationships breaking, addiction raging. Those are the battles Jesus leads us into armed with the spirit of life and armed with the love of Jesus. And it's so easy for us, so understandable for us as we're in those situations to only see the armies on all the hills that are against us. The realities of death, the realities of greed, injustice, sickness, brokenness, selfishness, all of the things that choke out life. But Jesus opens our eyes to see the other parts of reality. And the reality is the battle belongs to the Lord. 
Jesus has already won the great battle over sin and death. He's already risen from its depths. He's already ascended to the throne of heaven. He's already given us the spirit of forevermore to live in us now. And he calls us to take the next step of faith with eyes of faith opened by him into whatever dark night we may be called to walk into. And his light meets us there. We cannot open those eyes by ourselves. I don't have the strength to pry your eyes open, nor you have the strength to pry mine open, that we may be able to see such things. But they are real. Jesus is who he says he is. God is near. Our circumstances do not define what is most true of us because Jesus has descended to the depths of them, has taken everything on with us and for us, has won the battle and brings us with him to the glory of life everlasting with him. That's really hard to see unless you're looking at Jesus. And our job as we do the one anothering life together is to help one another fix our eyes on him not with the platitudes, but with the depth of real spiritual friendship as we sit in the dark together and fix our eyes on the one who sits with us there. He is our risen and ascended King. He is our high priest who's passed through the heavens and he's the one who attends to us and who opens our eyes. Would you pray with us now? Lord Jesus, open our eyes that we may see. Stir our hearts that we might love you and give us the courage to walk by faith, seeing through eyes of faith and not simply to walk by the sight of the light of our own eyes. We need your help, we need your spirit. We need your light and we thank you that you offer it to us in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.